So one of the areas I thought about dealing with is somewhere in the realm of sexuality. So we are going to talk about sex, so if anybody needs to leave, uh, you've got a couple minutes to get out. Um, I won't be doing any PowerPoints, I'm not sure, I'm, I don't know this church well enough on how much I can show on screen. Uh, I just finished a six-month uh, Wednesday night Bible study at my church, and we started the whole series off with Salt and Peppa's um, video on Let's Talk About Sex but I don't know if you guys are ready for that or not. Um, what's that? <laughs> okay. Well, now I've given you a song to have in your head the rest of the day. Um, some of the niche issues I've gotten into over the years as a teacher has really come from the needs of the students. So I've gotten involved in um, human trafficking issues, especially with the slavery laws in the Old Testament, creation, evolution, and of course, sexuality. So I have I have created and taught a class several times now over two institutions called Sexuality in the Bible or the Theology of Sexuality. And so I realize I'm coming from a world uh, where I'm dealing with college students. I'm dealing with a family of five kids, including three teenage daughters. And so I'm entering a discussion um, that's very near and dear, uh, but it's also localized. And I am pursuing or per, purveying, what's the word? I'm, I'm, I'm observing what's going on in the church, not just my church locally. Um, I'm a former Southern Baptist, so I'm keeping up with the SBC uh, shenanigans. Um, I've never been a member of a PCA church, but we, we did attend a PCA church for three years, and so I keep up even with the recent um, General Assembly. So I keep up with, with different issues going on. Of course, this is one of those issues that denominations are addressing. Um, I have no idea how much background each of you have. So some of this may sound very elementary. Um, some of it may be new. I hope we'll, at least it'll be helpful. And of course, I'm condensing lots and lots of stuff into a one-off thing. Um, usually, my style of teaching is to begin with discussion back and forth. And then I can finish and say, we'll pick up the next day. Well, obviously, I don't have that luxury here. So I'm going to withhold your talking for a while. <laughs> but when I open it up, I want us to stay focused on specific questions that are being asked. Or we, won't, we won't get through all this. This is just a bunch of stuff thrown together. We, we may go different places. Um, but I, I do want to focus particularly on the topic of homosexuality. Uh, which is clearly an issue. I thought about doing the trans issue, but that's much more difficult to settle um, in one setting. And it's, it's, the, it's kind of my new investigation because it's coming so fast. Um, you know, we talk about a sexual revolution in the 1960s, but it feels like we're in another one. Um, one of the many stats that are out there, humans will be having more sex with robots by the year 2050 than other humans. Of course, that's a prediction, but I think it's, it was in a serious, solid study. I mean, that's just around the corner, right? That's not that far away. Um, and so, the, and I think the church is going to look a lot different in the next five to ten years. Things that will start to be accepted, we never thought even 15 years ago we'd even dream about, even by people calling themselves evangelicals. Um, so part of this is just to start off with some terminology that you see there, realizing that there's a difference between the word sex and the word sexuality. Sex has two basic definitions, right? One is just pure biology, down to DNA, male and female. 
and sexuality is the much broader topic. I, I like to say sexuality has to do with everything that has to do with our maleness and femaleness. So if we use that definition, um, though we couldn't use this term, but if sexual as an adjective was used for sexuality in general, all of our relationships are sexual in that sense, right? This has to do with parents and kids, any interaction, that there's a, our sexuality is part of all of that. Um, but of course, the adjective sexual usually means something much more limiting. Um, and so sex can be just the biological aspect, and then sex, of course, can deal with um, the act of sex, having sex. Uh, the next distinction that is out there in the terminology is sex versus gender, where, again, sex is, well, at least until recently, it was purely biological, where gender at least adds to something of a social construct of awareness. Just think about the difference between male-female versus masculine-feminine, right? Those take on different traits, where you can have, a, think about the word tomboy, right? That's not a a negative term, where uh, a girl might have certain masculine traits and most of them are acceptable, right? And so there is something of a not as exact of a one-to-one -one correspondence when you get deal with gender. Of course, the modern discussion is can gender be completely separated from biological sex or not? And I'm just talking generally out there in the culture, but these are distinctions. Um, and then when you talk about sexual blank, we need to realize on one hand you've got sexual behavior, having sex or anything that is in that world, but then we have these three distinctions that I, I find most Christians don't think about, but I find them very helpful. There is a difference between sexual attraction, sexual orientation, and sexual identity. And we, we could get into those distinctions if we need to, but I think that's a really necessary distinction as Christians enter this discussion. Um, there's issues of the tension between nature and nurture, right? There's debates going on now. Um, of course, this gets into issues of how fixed is somebody's sexuality? Is there fluidity? Uh, SSA stands for same-sex attraction. I'm using, it's the most neutral term to use, though there's always debates about terms. Um, this gets into issues of is same-sex attraction something that people are quote-unquote born with or are, is it something they choose? Are they morally culpable for that attraction and so on? Um, of course, what does it mean to have sex? Does it involve more than coitus? Don't Google image any of these words. Probably a good thing. Um, and, but to get to the real, the church issues, right? These are all issues that are out there in the discussion. Um, this is a real issue. How do we address modern issues? When the Bible does not explicitly address these issues, certainly don't use the terms, but to be a good Christian, we need to live in two worlds, right? We need to live in the biblical world, where God's revelation comes from, but we've got to be aware of our own world and how to bridge the gap between those. You're not going to find a chapter and verse that addresses all the modern issues. And so good theological thinking needs to know how to go from one to the other, and part of that means you need to be aware of what's going on around us, and I find a lot of Christians quite tone deaf or just um, already out of date on some of the terminology that's being used. 
So how do we go to our Bible? Um, especially when we're dealing with English translations, which may or may not get the precise language the right way. I mean, some of the English translations were 20, 30, 40 years ago, and already the discussion in the language has shifted. Um, what do we do with certain terms? Christians disagree. Is it okay to use the label gay Christian? Um, and I suspect, I know, because I know at least one of you very well who looks a lot like me, we already disagree about some of these things. So I know there's disagreement in this room. Um, if somebody wants to use certain pronouns, right, you get into some practical realities. So these are the kind of practical issues we have to deal with. Um, there's a discussion within this gay Christian world between what's called side A and side B. How many of you know that, that language, side A, side B? One of you. All right. You could get on the Gay Christian Network, and there has been an ongoing debate for quite some time between Christians who, side A, are basically those who affirm monogamous homosexual relationships, and side B are those Christians who would allow for a Christian to have a same-sex attraction but should not act on it because the Bible says no. So it would hold to a traditional Christian sexual ethic, but would still say, well, this is the way we are and now address those things. And this was actually ruled on or is being discussed at the top level of the PCA last summer and this, past, and this summer. So it's worth getting into on the decisions they made. And I won't give my comment on what they've said, uh, but you, it is something your own denomination is addressing at the very moment. Um, you know, one of the practical questions would be, if you knew that somebody in your church was same-sex attracted, could they serve as an elder in your church? So that's just a question. That's a real question. It's a question every church needs to be addressing because it's going to become more prominent. Um, and then what is the correct posture towards those out in the culture, whether it's politics or your friends, your neighbors, and what do you do within the church? Now, I do not know your church very well, but it would be shocking if there are not individuals in this church just because of basic percentages that struggle. Your kids are struggling with them, with some of this. And so this is something that even this church needs to, to get a hold of because people are keeping secrets, and if they don't have an open place to talk, to get counseling, to get feedback, whether that's within the family or within the church, uh, we need to figure out a posture. So how do we address, well, let me just stop there. And again, any, any points of clarification? This isn't time to have kind of running commentary what to think about these things. I was just trying to lay, lay out this is where the lay of the land is. Any terms? I know because I don't have PowerPoint and not put anything on the board. I want to be able to clarify anything. So, yeah, the, there's no label for it, but yes, yeah, side A, side B doesn't cover every Christian. Um, for those who would think that um, nobody's born with a same-sex attraction, for instance, and I'm just using born with as a very colloquial sense, not to say Lady Gaga is the leading theologian, for those who know that song. Um, yeah, if you think any type of same-sex attraction that that person is morally culpable for having that, or they chose it, that doesn't even fit in the discussion. 
Um, so that would be an example. Of, so maybe in some ways a traditional kind of approach, naive approach to this would not fit. All right. I bored him already, Keith. We're good. All right. So without looking at my notes, or maybe now that you have looked at the notes, if somebody had asked you, where would you go in the Bible to talk about this, I'd be, it would be interesting. And of course, if we have time, we can have this discussion, but I decided to go ahead and stick it in there. It'd be interesting if most Christians know what verses to go to. Where does the Bible actually address this issue? We assume a certain position, but would we even know where to go? Um, there are about six-ish, you could add a seventh, would have been known as the clobber text. These are, that's the way that it's described by those who feel beaten up when people throw Bible verses at them. And many of these don't actually address the issue in my mind. I threw in Genesis 9 there. This is dealing with the, the curse on Canaan because of Ham who went in and uncovered his father's nakedness, whatever that means. Some have suggested some kind of um, homosexual uh, activity. We don't really know. It could have been lots of things. It could have been voyeurism. It could have slept with Mrs. Noah. Who knows? Something sexual happened, but to limit it to homosexual, even if it was, you're dealing with incest, it's a text that doesn't have much context to describe what's going on there. So I don't think that fits. Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, that's where we get the word sodomy from. I'm just going to be very quick. I think it's an unhelpful text. Even if it is describing some kind of homosexual activity, there's also gang rape involved, and it's just too cluttered to, to be a simple, obvious text to speak to this issue. Um, I would say the same thing about Judges 19, if you know about that text um, with the Levite. Did I hear an amen? I don't know. Yeah, so, this, so a very similar thing where there is... It's more than what the issue you're talking about. When you're talking about a loving, monogamous, homosexual relationship, that is not what's happening in these narratives. So that really leaves one possible text in the Old Testament. Now just think about that. The Old Testament is fairly silent about this issue. It's not something that comes up, and it doesn't mean that it wasn't an issue in the ancient Near East. It's quite interesting that when you look at the Egyptian laws and uh, all the way back to Samaria and the different, um, the second millennium uh, Mesopotamian text, that there were different views on these things, and it was actually much more progressive early on and got a little uh, more conservative in the first millennium. There was not a ubiquitous, universal kind of understanding, uh, but we do have Leviticus 18 and 20, which are the chapters which deal with right, if you uncover the nakedness, right, basically some kind of sexual activity, and it kind of mentions everybody in the family. And some of it gets a little comical, right? If you have sex with your grandmother, you're like, really, that was happening? They needed a law against that? But it kind of goes to the whole list, and one of those talks about if a man lies with a man, like with a woman. So chapter 18 lays out the prohibitions, and then chapter 20 gives the punishments, which is basically death penalty for all of these crimes. Now, just think about that. I'm going to come back to that text because that text is more relevant than we might think. Because it's Leviticus, after all, right? Somebody could just say, well, that's, isn't that the same book that talks about not sowing two kinds of seeds and not having tattoos, you know, and then all the sacrifices which are clearly done away with in Christ, right? 
So you could easily just kind of throw Leviticus out the window, uh, except that it's also where we find love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but it will become more relevant than we might think. Although the, that question about the, the ceremonial law has to be addressed. Um, and I, I guess I'll just say right now, it, the position I'm going to take here in a second would be lockstep except for one verse in Leviticus 18 where it pro also prohibits a sexual activity during a menstrual cycle, which just feels like a different level. Um, it feels much more ceremonial to me than moral law for those who know the, the distinctions. But, so I'm just, I'm being honest with a caveat there. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and tell you the position I'm, I'm going to take here is, uh, have you ever heard the objection, well, Jesus never addressed this issue, never talked about this issue? That's one of the common objections. But Jesus does use several times, and somewhere down there, um, yeah, on the third bullet point on the specific text, the word porneia, the Greek word porneia, usually translated sexual immorality. Obviously, it's where we get our, our word pornography from. Though that doesn't, the English isn't necessarily the same as the Greek. When you look at the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, porneia is used to describe Leviticus 18 and 20. So if I was to ask, where did Jesus and the apostles get their view of porneia from? I think the most logical place that they're drawing that for, if, they, if you're trying to give some content other than a generic term, if they're drawing from the Hebrew Scriptures at all, they're drawing it from Leviticus 18. So I think that gives a good grounds, and I could really make the case when you get to the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, if you were to, to study the kind of issues that are still prohibited when James, the Mac Daddy Apostle in Jerusalem, gets up and speaks, that he's clearly talking about subsections Leviticus 17 and 18. So I think there's good evidence exegetically that porneia is drawing specifically from Leviticus. Which means when Jesus or the apostles speak out against porneia, it seems the list they have in their mind is back in Leviticus. The specifics. Um, so I guess in, in a secondhand way, Jesus does speak about this issue if we can make that exegetical point. That leaves us with three, really two strong New Testament texts out of all of these. If you add the Leviticus. So I, I would say three. I, I'm, I'm, First Timothy 1 is kind of in a list is doing kind of the same thing that First Corinthians 6 is doing. So you're really left with Romans 1, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and we could turn there in a bit, and First Corinthians 6. Out of the whole Bible, those are the specific ones. Which means we have to, I, I would suggest, pay careful attention to what is and what's not being said. And there's going to be some um, debate about that. But I left one text remaining. It's kind of somewhere on the list. <laughs> I don't know if anybody caught, caught it. The early chapters of Genesis, of course. Which theologically are very, very important. Though they don't use the word homosexual or relate to it. It definitely speaks to it, if you understand what those chapters are doing. And um, we have confirmation from the New Testament that many general ref references to the Old Testament are going back to Genesis to talk about issues like marriage and divorce. Um, even 1 Corinthians 6, which is one of the passages, of course, Ephesians 5, 
that they see as normative those early chapters of Genesis to give us God's great design. And so those are texts that are worth looking at as well to speak specifically to these issues. So some of the questions that we have to deal with, and I've already kind of mentioned some of this, are, are specific references limited in any way? I've already suggested texts like Genesis 9, Genesis 19, Judges 19. There's too much going on to make it an easy text to go to. I think in a conversation with somebody, there's just too much going on. Even I wouldn't say that those texts necessarily speak to the current discussion. Other issues that people talk about are when you're dealing with, say, Romans 1, some have tried to make the case that in the Greco-Roman context, what you're not dealing that basically the point is this, the Bible never addresses consensual monogamous homosexual relationships because it wasn't a thing in the culture. Well, we're getting more and more evidence that that's not true, that there is some evidence, but what was very prominent in the Roman world especially is what's called pederasty where you would have a basically man-boy love. I think they're still NAMBLA, right? The National American Association of Man-Boy Love Association. Why I know that, I don't know, because I'm in this world. Um, but so you, you can have, right, a, a, an adult male and a child or a master and a slave. That was very prominent. And it was quite acceptable for the master of the house to basically do with whatever he wants with his wife, others under his control, children, slaves, um, to satisfy his own sexual desires. Um, and so the question comes, when you go to a text like Romans 1, is that the only thing it's addressing? So it's a question for now. But these are the kind of discussions that are being had. And these are discussions by people who purport and I think sincerely believe the Bible. So this isn't just by loonies out there, but people who are within the church calling themselves Christians, trying to deal with the exegesis of certain texts. Um, I throw a question out here, which I won't get into here, but how much is Romans 1 speaking about to the individual versus just large-scale societal universal issues? Um, sometimes people have used that. Uh, why don't we go to Romans 1 since we're, we've been talking about it? So get your Bibles, phony Bibles if you have them. I'm assuming some knowledge. If you don't know what I'm talking, I have no idea what translation I have up here. I probably should change that to something. The English Berean Study Bible. I have no idea what I'm looking at that. Oh, because I like their translation in 1 Corinthians 6. That's why. All right, so, um, of course, the gospel is defined in verses 16 and 17, and then starting in 18, uh, God starts... Uh, or Paul starts talking about the wrath of God being poured out because people have an awareness, a sense of, of God, and then it goes, it's going to go on a, a litany of sins um, that make people without excuse uh, about not knowing God, and of course, uh, we have three times, I think beginning in verse, um, well, let's pick up in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So uh, th lots of things that could go under the, the label idolatry here. And then beginning in 24, three times, he's going to say, God gave them over to certain epithumii. <laughs> certain epithumia is the Greek word that means desire. 
and it has a large semantic range like the English word desire, right? Desire can be neutral, it can be positive, it can be negative. So your translations will pick different, depending on their translation philosophy, the translation I'm looking at now uses the word lust. I don't know if other translations say different things here, but God gave them over to the desires of their hearts, which clearly is negative in this context, to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves, so exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. God gave them over again, verse 26, to dishonorable desires, passions. I'd have to check the Greek if that's the exact same word here, but uh, again, we're dealing with words that can be positive, negative, neutral. For their women exchange, this is the only place that it addresses females, by the way, in the whole Bible. The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were considered, again, with desire for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error, and so on. So this is an important text on the discussion. Um, it has been abused. <laughs> if you remember when AIDS first came out as a big uh, global crisis, uh, people, you know, some Christians were probably well-meaning but not <laughs> well-informed. AIDS is God's judgment upon homosexuality, which I think is hard to substantiate. Um, but it does deal with a pretty serious list of human sins that deserve the wrath of God and goes into quite detail, not just a label here, right? We're talking about verses, and it gets in the issue of desire. This is the one text that you might raise the question in using the modern taxonomy of same-sex attraction, orientation, identity, does this chapter speak to that issue? I have my opinions, and we could have that discussion, but it's the one place that needs to go. What does it mean? What does the word desire here mean? Does this include those who say, as the dozens of students I've had in my office say, I prayed against this. I didn't want this, right? I wasn't looking forward for this, but I am attracted to the same sex. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. I want to believe the Bible. What do I do? Am I to look at that student or your child and say, you are under the wrath of God you have exchanged the truth for a lie, and you need to repent. That's the real practical question. And would this verse speak to that issue? Or are these verses speaking to something more than that? And then what do we do with that individual? Because even the, those ex-gay ministries have now come out and say, all the reparative therapy stuff doesn't work. Exodus International, close their doors. And so this is fairly new within the last 20 years. So what do we do? When at least by testimony, if not by the science, there seems to be people who are wired a certain way. And I can say it here that wiring itself is contrary to God's nature and creation design, but that's the way they are. No one's questioning in this. I'm not thinking about those who question that the condition itself is a result of the fall. 
but is that individual morally culpable so that every day they are living in outright rebellion against God because of their attraction? What does redemption look like on this side of the new heavens and earth? These are practical questions. And if individuals, again, probably in this congregation, old or young, if they don't have a place to go or understand what that means, what are their options? They run or they repress. They sit there feeling guilty. Those, these are real issues that need to be addressed. And I can tell you the younger generation will not have just kind of let's no talk policy on these things. Even those who aren't struggling with them themselves. I, uh, the very, I'm surprised how honest college students can be. The very first assignment I give is you have to write a letter to yourself when they're like 13 or 14. Anything to do with sexuality. Just write a letter. Professors, you're only going to see it. Of course, almost 90% of the guys, of course, it's pornography that they're struggling with, right? It's amazing. Two-thirds of the, the girls in that class are struggling with their sexual orientation. Now, of course, they're probably self-selecting my class because of that issue, and I guess I'm known as the professor you can go to to talk about it, but still, that, I mean, that happened this past semester. Two-thirds of the Christian uh, college females. And I don't know where the percentages are. I think this new generation, 30-something percent, identify as LGBTQ, whatever. Um, so what do we do with this text since it, it seems to me to clearly speak, because it's saying with all just a little exegesis, when it says with one another, that seems consensual. I don't think this can be limited to pederasty or those kind of issues. This seems to be consensual homosexual activity. Um, but now the issue is who is actually being identified here as it relates to the modern discussion. The other text we have to, let me just see. Well, maybe I, hmm, okay, I'll open it up <laughs> since we're in Romans 1. Specific questions you have. I don't know if you've thought through this issue. Oh, really? Tell me, because I've read it many times. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, so, so the, for, the sake, uh, for the sake of the, the recording, the comment is that the rest of the laundry list of sins uh, perhaps answers the question. I guess I would want to know what question answers because to me it doesn't address that specific issue with the person I identified. But it's still the same level of sin. It's, it's sin against God. And the, the yeah. anecdote here is repentance, but it says here that you're desert God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those 
who practice them. So okay, so that might actually, so when he says it is the same sin, my question is what is it? I'm trying to identify the it in the passage in 20, verses 24 to 28. That's the thing that's being debated. We would all agree that two men having sex is sin. It's interesting you said the same, because sometimes we put it in a special, super sinful category, right? So actually that would be helpful, that yes, it's, it, it is sinful, but how much should we elevate it above other sins? Though I'm gonna answer that a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6. The one thing I'm glad you read was when it says, who practice such things. That might answer it for some of you, right? Because if we're dealing with somebody who's attracted but not acting, are they under the wrath of God based on this passage, right? These are the kind of discussions your church needs to be having as you walk through the text. So in that sense, it might answer that, and it would exclude people from being condemned who are same-sex attracted, right? That would be side B or those even further outside the conversation. So maybe in that sense it answers it, but then you go back and it uses the word desire, and what does that mean for our modern word attraction, right? It gets, I'm not here to settle everything for you. I have opinions, and, but my opinions aren't worth very much. Um, but th actually, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because it does talk about the practicing of such things, is there anything else on the list that is something that is just felt that's not demonstrated? It even says disobedient to parents. Yes. Let's kill them all. Let's get rid of those kids. Yes. But, but, and that actually makes sense from an Old Testament context because part of the reason that in Leviticus 18, not to get too much on a rabbit trail, is uh, in the Old Testament, the death penalty is very limiting. In, in any culture, including our own, you know what a, a culture values by what it attaches the death penalty to. In America, first-degree murder and uh, treason, right? <laughs> so we like national security and life, supposedly. But Israel was actually very limiting. Um, one of the very few things besides first-degree murder and outright idolatry was something that does disrupt the family unit. And that's why I think the the issue of the children and kids are thrown in there, just to give some background. Yes? interview on Ligonier recently, but Rosaria Butterfield talks about how, first of all, we have to understand that we need to be saved from sin, not one's particular sin, but all sin. And I think when we see it that way, we can understand that we need to, again, not elevate this sin above other sins. It is a sin that has, um, as R.C. Sproul takes it, it is, it is such an, a sin that goes against nature the way God created us, as in Romans 1. Um, I think it's showing the perverseness that our generation is flaunting now. But if we go to like Matthew 5, um, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So anything that is outside of that prescriptive, monogamous, one man, one woman relationship that was established in Matthew 1, any desire for anything outside of that is sin. And the Bible says that we are to put sin to death in our hearts. And Paul is a fantastic example when he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. And so we, ha you know, understanding that we have to, whether it's a desire for, um, you know, someone of the same sex or a desire for 
pornography or an, you know, a sinful, lustful desire for um, a man to a woman or a woman to a man that shouldn't be there, again, outside of that, the, the bounds of biblical marriage, um, even, whether or not it's this particular sin or another, we all have sinful lusts in our hearts for a particular thing we shouldn't have. And we have to continually, as the Bible says, put that to death over and over and over yeah. again. So a couple things. I, I appreciate the we are all right sinners. <laughs> and so I think pastorally that's really helpful. And the question is, does do our young people, from my context, as the world, do they feel that the church is teaching we're just like you, right? We're all a bunch of snakes. Come slither on in and join us and hear the gospel, right? <laughs> I don't know. What's that? Yes, I know they do, brother. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure the church at large is giving that message. And so that's clearly something that needs that we are all, right, wicked and have our own junk. And that's something helpful for them to hear. And I hope they hear it more. Um, however, this question still remains. You brought up Matthew 5. Again, it's that word epithemia, desire. We know in context... I mean, we all know distinctively there's a difference between me being attracted to somebody, even if they're not my wife, and then where's that line where it becomes lust, right? God has not wired us to not to view attraction and see things, right? We're not supposed to be uh, attraction blind or whatever <laughs> the, the phrase would be. So there's a line there that we know, and that's, that's the question on this issue of the homosexuality issue. Is same-sex attraction, has it already crossed the line? Or is it simply, right, on the safe zone? Still recognizing that it's a result of the fall, but is that individual morally culpable for it? So, all right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Let me uh, yes, add please. one thing on the Matthew passage. Um, one acceptable translation of that that's always fascinated me isn't just the desire, but the man attempts to get the woman to lust for him. So it oh, involves more yeah. than a bird flying over your head. It's allowing the bird to make a nest in your hair, as Luther would say. So it's, it's more than just a passing right. a notice of attractive person. Uh, it is actually acting. It moves from just the view of it. The, the craving, so to speak. That's an acceptable word, too, for epithumia, is craving. Yep, yep. And so as a result of that, he, it's in the middle voice in one of the uh, Greek, or in the actual Greek, and it could be translated, the man himself attempts to get the woman right. to lust for him. So I just thought I'd bring that. Yeah, so there's mo maybe more going on there than, of course, the English rings. And, and of course, coming out of a purity culture, especially the 90s, early 2000s, and of course, fundamentalist traditions before then, where it was almost don't taste, don't touch, don't look at at all, and so everything became guilt, 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 and yeah, that's helpful. So again, it, th there's still conversations to be had on this issue, and we're dealing with real people in our midst. Um, so 1 Corinthians 6 is the one other passage. Uh, this is the one that does deal with sexual sin, this is the one that will end with um, maybe going to the end of it. Um, you know, one of the most misused Bible verses are about uh, our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we want to relate that to uh, 
alcohol, tobacco, non-gluten-free food, double bacon cheeseburgers, whatever, but the context is sleeping with a prostitute. <laughs> so we're dealing with sexual sin here. And he does say that every other sin is committed outside the body. So if we want to talk about special category, it's not that sexual sin is more sinful, but it has certain damaging effects. And we can all speak to that from experience, right? That, um, as I talk to college students, of course, right? Uh, um, and I could talk about all kinds of modern movies, right? Sleeping with somebody casually, you'll never go back to be just friends, right? It's just not the way that we're wired. There are damages, there are skeletons in our closet, but that's all sexual sin. Certainly, same-sex sex is not um, distinguished. Uh, but if we back up um, in the passage here, let me see, where do I want to pick up? Oh, did I pass it? It's earlier, isn't it? Yeah, back to verse 9. Um, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That makes this a really big deal, right? The fact that that language is there scares me as I try to be one who nuances this discussion and addresses it. At the end of the day, we're talking about those who make it or don't make it into the kingdom. But look at the list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's the porneia word, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. We're going to come back to this phrase. I originally had on your sheet, but I didn't want to go on to a, a second page. Um, the multiple translations of this next phrase. So maybe you try out different translations. The end of verse 9. This one says, nor men who practice homosexuality which actually hides two different Greek terms there. But then it goes on to talk about thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. So think about that, that it's a hodgepodge of lists, right? If you were to come up with your top ten of those who don't inherit the kingdom of God, I wonder if it'd be the same list. Because those struggling on the sexual issues got to realize those who steal or who simply are greedy are drunkards, right? But of course he goes on to say, such were some of you, but you've been washed and sanctified and justified. Um, what we have here, just to be very quick, there, there are two Greek terms, malakoi, which simply means soft men, um, which in context refers to the passive partner in a gay sex activity. Arsenikoitai, which is a made-up word, which comes from two words. Arsen, which just comes from the word for male or man. And then koitai, you can, that's where we get our word coitus, right? Which has to do with the, the actual sex act. Um... It could be referred to just the bed, but so man betters, which I think in context most naturally refers to the active participant in a gay sex act. So I don't want to be too descriptive here, but I hope you get that. And the, one of those words is also used in 1 Timothy 1. So it seems to be, again, if that's what it is, and I don't think there's any um, real debate about what this means, though some modern, uh, just as an aside, 
there's a revised NRSV that just came out this year, which totally destroys, and it clearly seems to be an agenda-driven thing, where they, drew, they reduced this to male prostitution. But I think in context, it's clear that this is not being limited. This is consensual activity that covers all types. But here's the question. My translation says, men who practice homosexuality. I'm glad that the word practice is there. Here's my controversial take. I don't think the word homosexuality should show up in any Bible verse because I find it confusing. First of all, homosexual is a technical term. People don't describe themselves as homosexual. They generally call themselves gay or queer. That's the language they, they prefer. So homosexual is already kind of a clinical distancing term that doesn't describe the way people self-identify. But the real issue is it gets back to that distinction that needs to be made between attraction, orientation, and identity. When I hear the word homosexual, homosexuality, in my mind, that speaks more to the attraction and orientation issue than any type of behavior. And so we throw around words like homosexual or gay and don't understand that distinction, don't realize that the verse is speaking about actual activity and is not addressing, in my mind, the issue of attraction orientation, then we are really speaking past each other in damaging ways. It's not just sloppy, it can be damaging to people who are sitting there hearing us or reading us on what we're saying. It seems to me this is speaking about actual activity. It gets quite explicit, actually. And that's the thing that's being condemned. It has not even come close to Romans 1 that might at least address the issue of desire. So I would advocate removing the word homosexual from our translations because of that and trying to come up with some other... Translation, that was why I had that other one. It's, it still uses the word, but here's, here's probably my favorite. So, it still uses the word homosexual, but this is the Berean study Bible, not your most common Bible. Uh, it says, men who submit to or perform homosexual acts. That gets pretty explicit on what's happening there. Let me just pause for questions on the 1 Corinthians 6. I'm just saying these are the most explicit passages that speak to this. I'm saying it that I don't think this verse speaks to same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction needs to be addressed still. I just don't see it being addressed in this passage. Romans 1 is the closest you might come to, and then just a larger theological understanding. And of course, we're not gonna, it doesn't look like we're going to get to Genesis today. Yeah. At the top of my list of people who should not inherit the kingdom of God is me apart from, you know, the washing of Christ and, and the uh, putting on of the new nature. And I think that's, you know, how I read this passage and, and all others is, you know, uh, and, and such were some of you. Um, and I think that's the most uh, telling and, and also the, the most clarifying. Uh, uh, and I think there's a reason that, you know, we use that in our uh, repentance and uh, call to repentance or um, our confessions of sin is to say, like, hey, we, we are all, we're all subject to this list, 
Uh, we've all been greedy. We've all, uh, you know, stolen. Um, uh, even if it's to, to steal time from our employers by goofing off at work, right? Uh, but the, these sins uh, run deep, um, and we're, you know, I, I, like I said, we should be at the top of our own list. Yeah, that's helpful. And, but it does say, as such, were some of you. So the expectation is there will be change and repentance. So that becomes the pastoral question on this issue. Who needs to repent? And we, again, I'm coming back to that individual, which I'd say hypothetical, but it's not so hypothetical. That Christian who loves Jesus, loves the Bible, and wants to act on pastoral advice and counsel, and they're sitting there saying, I'm just kind of wired this way, what does repentance look like on this side of heaven? That is the question. Yeah. That's the question. And, I, I, that, and, I and that's where think, I want to put the question. I, I do not think, I, I don't want to be a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I do not think repentance is very well understood, what that means. Does it mean I don't ever think it, want it, or do it again? It didn't for Paul, and it didn't for the rest of people in the New Testament. And so this idea that repentance is a one-time act, no, it's a lifestyle. Hey, and that was so, Luther's very first thesis. Yeah, it was. Repentance, a lifetime. Yeah, and, and again, it comes back to the practical question. Could somebody, I'm just going to say it, in this church, come out and say, this is me. Am I welcome not only as a member? Could I teach Sunday school? Could I be an elder? That's the practical question. I've got my opinions on where that should be, but I'm not here to say what this church should do. These are the issues that you need to address. Um, and if we start within the household of God on these issues... All right, then we might start having a posture towards those out there. Um, are, we, are we done now, or is it, is it over? Uh, yeah, it's over. Oh. <laughs> Can I say one more thing? Sorry, I was yes. thinking in my mind 1030, so no, I really absolutely. apologize. Yes, please. I wish we had a whole other week for this. I think my, I, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet either. I think the real problem here, let me, let me push the little buttons here. I think that we have an idolatry of marriage and family. And I think the church needs to figure out what to do with single people in general. And if we figure a larger theology of that and uh, practical ways of dealing with that, we might be able to incorporate those who are struggling, who don't feel like they'll ever get to the place of getting married. So, all right.